0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. The first breadcrumbs show up during World War I, when a chemist at Johns Hopkins was inventing a way to synthesize silica gel. Today, you probably know it as those little paper packets you're not supposed to eat from the pockets of your new clothes. But during the Great War, it was needed in quantity for gas masks, In his experiments with the synthesized material, Walter Patrick noticed that sometimes, when he used silica gel to soak up water, a small amount of it would resist being absorbed. A few more crumbs over the next couple of decades. An American grad student in the 20s writes a dissertation on water that is adverse to evaporating when placed in tiny, thin, long crystal vials or capillary tubes. Then... A researcher in the USSR finds a similar phenomenon in the late 40s. Blips. Curiosities. Nothing to take note of, and no one much did. Even in 1961, when an obscure Soviet scientist on the edge of Siberia began pumping distilled water vapor into capillaries, it wasn't important research, just a tiny few drops of water in some tiny little quartz tubes. Nothing to start a war over. Except, it kinda did. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, 1% Inspiration. The experiment looked like this. Nikolai Fidyakin placed these tiny syringe-like tubes in a sealed box with a bit of water underneath. Then he pumped the air pressure out of the box causing the water to evaporate and the vapor to condense back into liquid water in the tubes but when he pulled the tubes out and put them under his microscope he noticed something strange at the ends of the tubes was something well something like water but not it was thick and sticky like maple syrup And it didn't freeze or boil like water. It stayed liquid down to negative 50 centigrade, didn't boil at less than 400. And even when it eventually froze, it didn't behave like water. It contracted instead of expanding, became almost crystalline. What was this stuff? And how was he creating it? The tubes had been sterilized, the water distilled... The only possible answer was that Fedyakin had happened upon some new and mysterious form of water, which would be a big deal, but, and I don't mean to pick on him, but it's important to emphasize Fedyakin was a nobody. He simply didn't have the clout to properly herald his discovery. The best he could do was to publish in a fairly obscure Russian-language journal, but that story happened to catch the attention of Boris Duryagin. You'd be forgiven for not knowing Duryagin. Lord knows I didn't know him before working on this story, and I still can't pronounce his name, but he was one of the foremost accomplished and revered chemists of 20th-century Russia. When Duryagin read Fedyakin's work, he rushed his obscure colleague to Moscow and usurped his work. Basically, Duryagin had the reach and expertise to do what Fedyakin couldn't, and Fedyakin didn't even have the power to register a complaint, as Duryagin sidled his way into full credit for the discovery of this new super-substance. It was in 1966 that Duryagin announced said discovery at England's Faraday Society, The next year, he presented similar results in New Hampshire. The Brits and Americans were initially skeptical. After all, what were the odds that water, one of the most abundant and studied substances on Earth, would hold a secret so long, and then give it up so easily? They laughed at the Russian, if uneasily. But some couldn't help but admit that the experiment seemed solid, at first glance. Duryagin detailed for the world how he was farming this new substance, which he was doing in far greater quantities than the cast-off Fedyakin had managed, and a couple of Western researchers were curious enough to say, what the hell, and give the method a shot, if only to confirm that Russian science was full of inferior crackpots, that even the great Boris Duryagin had lost his mind. But that isn't what they found. Both the American and British team's set up their first round of experiments. They sanitized their quartz capillary tubes, forced condensed water vapor through them, and waited for 18 hours. When they came back, there it was. On the edges of the tubes, this strange, syrupy, super stable water, which had been called anomalous water, or offspring water, until the Americans stepped in, as Americans are wont to do with better marketing, and thus, Polywater was born. And man, was it a hit! When the American team published their first paper in Science confirming the fantastic properties of polywater and hypothesizing that the water was taking on a plasticine crystal structure, the story exploded. The Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post by 1970, every major paper and magazine was agog with stories about the new wonder water. Corporations and universities clamored for a commercial application. But most fascinated of all was the military. The Navy held conferences while the Defense Department created grants, all out of concern that there was a growing polywater gap with the Soviets. No one was quite sure what the stuff could be used for. Maybe it would be an antifreeze, or a coolant, or a lubricant. Maybe all of those. Maybe it would help desalinate water. But whatever it was... The stuff was good for. We couldn't go having the Ruskies getting more of it than us. Then there was the other concern that polywater was something more directly deadly and dangerous. In Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, he thought up a substance called Ice 9, a form of water that was solid at room temperature and that which, spoiler alert, eventually converted all water on Earth and killed off almost all life. Some members of the scientific community were concerned that polywater could get loose from the lab and spread just like Vonnegut's sci fi story. But while most experts were busy thinking up uses for the stuff or calling out hypothetical dangers, there were some who still maintained niggling doubts. At the University of Southern California, Dennis Rousseau had been taken by the flurry of research and started trying to make some polywater for himself he particularly wanted to try to settle one still-open question about Polywater, its spectrographic signature. The major players in Polywater, Duryagin in Russia, as well as the British team in London and an American one, had all attempted to figure out exactly what Polywater was via Raman spectroscopy, shooting a laser into a sample and measuring the spectrum of light it emitted. Every substance has a unique signature, and the results from the three teams had been inconsistent. The Brits said it was the same signature as regular old water, while the Russians and Americans showed a unique, uncatalogued substance. Indeed, Rousseau confirmed this. Whatever polywater was, it wasn't something they had a spectrum signature for. But he didn't stop there. Rousseau ran analysis for contaminants and found some odd stuff in the polywater. Sodium, calcium, potassium, chlorine. But where were these contaminants coming from? All the tubes were sanitized. All the water distilled. Was he doing something wrong? Was everyone? He couldn't work it out. And then, during an intense game of handball, Rousseau had his eureka moment. He took off his sopping t-shirt wrung it out into a container and ran the container to his lab shot his argon laser at it took a look at the light emission and there it was the same signature poly water was miraculous concentrated ordinary scientist sweat every lab across the world had been doing their best to keep their experiments clean, but they hadn't sterilized themselves. And while they were setting up their high temperature water vaporization, it never occurred to them that they were also vaporizing tiny little beads of their own perspiration. Rousseau published his findings in 1971 on the heels of literally hundreds of scholarly papers about polywater and millions of dollars spent between the two great superpowers to achieve sweat supremacy. Nobody, not Boston, not London, not even Russia, bothered to argue. The truth was right there before their very eyes, or beneath their sweaty brows. From the city beautiful, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant.